Today's scripture is from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. Have you ever said those words to someone or heard them? Uh, This is one of the most common and supreme values in life. Um, I imagine through all of human history, but especially in our day, we hear it a lot. I hear it a lot around me. And it's a a most common and supreme value in life uh, in people's attitude towards one another. I just want you to be happy. And so this means that oftentimes we are willing to trump other morals and values to be able to place this value of happiness on a pedestal. Uh, Two quick real examples in my social circles, my relationships. A daughter wants to move in with her boyfriend. Uh, This is a grown uh, woman. Uh, She's an adult now. She's got a job and is becoming financially independent. She has been a a hardworking girl uh, who's worked very hard to get to where she is. It seems like she's thought this through. Uh, It seems like they love each other. And so the parents just want her to be happy. So what's the big deal? And so they bless it. Uh, A a real story from my son's school. A son, a a boy in grade 7 is exploring his sexuality. He's been taught that gender identity is fluid. uh, That he's been taught you can declare your own pronouns. And he's intrigued by they, them. Because he finds himself attracted physically and emotionally to both males and females, and so he thinks he's bisexual. He tells his parents, uh, and his parents, also products of our modern culture, uh, just want him to be happy. So they support his exploration. I just want you to be happy. Now, we say this a lot, at least I do, um, from the pulpit, and it's good to just be aware of this and understand you know, what we're up against uh, as we, and what we need to be aware of as we live in the world. The world's happiness really is about happy now. Okay? They want to be happy now. We shouldn't be surprised because the Bible describes us as sons of disobedience. And what the Bible means by that, what even Paul has used that phrase in his Ephesian, uh, letter to the Ephesians, is that we resemble our spiritual father and mother, Adam and Eve. And if you boil down their disobedience If you distill it, it was essentially committing the sin of immediate gratification. They wanted to be happy now, as that fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looks so uh, just delectable and good for wisdom and to be like God. They committed the sin of immediate, instant gratification of being happy now. And so, resembling our parents, we fail to consider the need to be happy forever. Sure, we can bless uh, a situation, a person to be happy now, but how will that stand? How will that happiness stand in the face of God and His judgment on that final day? This is why faith in Jesus, while on earth, on the contrary, has such a long haul, a long-suffering, delayed gratification quality about it. Because it's the very opposite of the very first sin and the root of all our fallenness. And there's only one way to be happy forever. It's to be happy in Jesus. To be happy in Jesus. 
Thankfully, happiness in Jesus Christ, and this is an appeal to anyone who's investigating Christianity and Jesus Christ today, uh, Christianity is utterly, completely about your happiness and happiness now, but also forever. Of course, we have to really dig deep into what is God's definition of the happy life. But it certainly is not that God does not want you to be happy. He just wants you to be happy in a way that reflects Him and His character, who He is. But I want you to be thankful and to have that joy, that hope, that happiness in Jesus is being happy now and forever. Now, let's get really specific and start to uh, approach today's passage God's happy now is specifically being filled with the Spirit. If I could give you a definition of what it means to be happy now as a Christ follower, it's to be filled with the Spirit. And this is why Paul's encouragement is so radically beautiful and refreshing. Now, recall the context. Paul has been arguing against the world's pursuit of sexuality, meaning their sexual happiness is a wanton, uh, wanton, instant sexual gratification. And a clear and distinct counterculture is in this command to be filled with the Spirit. We didn't read it, but it's a few verses earlier. It will come up on the screen in a moment or so. Where we, in our short-term, this-life-only thinking, wish for one another, I just want you to be happy... God the Father wishes for us to be filled with the Spirit. We really need to get this, especially if you uh, call yourself a Christ follower today, to really understand this command, this definition, really. This is definitive of being a Christ follower, that you are filled with the Spirit. You can even make a strong argument that God's greatest desire, uh, next to his glory, is for you and me to be filled with the Spirit. Now, Albert, you might say, well, isn't it, no, that you might believe in Jesus, that he died for you on the cross, took your place, took your punishment, and through the resurrection that you can know his power and eternal life? You might say that. But I argue strongly that being filled with the Spirit is even more important because it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who actually opens up your eyes to see Jesus that way in the first place. Because it's the Spirit of God who actually and practically convinces us in our hearts and regenerates our hearts of Jesus' work and his personhood to really believe he is who he says he is and to actually place our faith in him. So God's happy now is being filled with the Spirit. And so I, I repeat again something I've said in the past You can't go wrong with this sincere prayer, this simple prayer every morning as you start your day, as you wake up, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. That, that, you can't go wrong with that habit, with that prayer each and every day and even throughout the day. Fill me with your spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Now, we're camping out here because this is the foundation for uh, the the verse that uh, Joel read, um, submitting one another. Before we get to that, we will get to that. And it's a very important verse. But first, we need to revisit the foundation even for that verse. 
Now, so what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? If you've read your Bible, if you've grown up in the church, or maybe you're uh, hearing this and learning this for the first time, which is good, you need to understand that there's a difference between being filled with the Spirit and being indwelled or baptized in the Spirit. I do believe those are synonymous. And there's another uh, category of relating to the Spirit, being sealed with the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul explains and teaches, for in one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we were all, meaning the church, the entire church, we were all, what's the verb there? Baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So meaning, when you professed faith in Jesus Christ, in that instant, God the Father baptized you in the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit indwelt you. He, he came inside you. And so that's why Paul says that we drink of one Spirit. What does drink of the Spirit mean than the fact that He indwells us? We, we imbibe Him. We, he, he comes inside of us like a drink coming into our body. But next, we are also sealed with the Spirit when you and I professed faith in Jesus as our substitute. And so Paul explains earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so you believed in him at the moment of profession, what happens simultaneously is that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is, and so Paul explains what it means to be sealed, who is the guarantee And a synonym for that, another word for that, is a deposit. And so a helpful analogy, something we can understand in our day, is like an engagement ring. Uh, Something to demonstrate, to symbolize, uh, to show your commitment to this covenant, to this relationship. And that you're in it for forever, for the long haul. And so God, he covenants himself with those who profess faith in Jesus with himself the third person of himself, the Trinity. And so he is indwelling us as like an engagement ring, so to speak. And so God sealing, saying, I I will not forsake you. I am committed to you in Jesus Christ, in this new covenant of grace. So much so you can be confident that it's guaranteed, it's deposited in you, my third person, Now, why is being filled with the Spirit? So, let's pause. So what we're trying to say is that being filled with the Spirit is different from just being indwelt and baptized in the Spirit and having the Spirit deposited in us uh, as a guarantee of our, our eternity uh, in Christ with the Father. Okay? This is important because being a Christian is just another way to say that following Jesus is not a one-and-done deal. You don't just enter and have this label slapped on you that you're a Christian, but no, now, each and every day until Christ calls us home, we're meant to continue to grow into Christ-likeness and to live out our faith and to continue to wrestle with what it looks like to live out our faith and to continue to pray the Lord's Prayer and to to long for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven and to forgive others and, and on and on and on. And this is where being filled with the Spirit comes in. And so we want to ask the question, 
Why is being filled with the Spirit indispensably essential? Meaning this defines the Christ follower. Perhaps you've never, if someone asked you randomly on the street, what does it mean to be a Christian? Would this statement, this tenet, uh, be part of your explanation? That you need to be filled with the Spirit. If that isn't what percolates to your mind, even now as I'm asking the question, then settle for yourself today. Especially Christ follower. Today, settle for yourself. This is an indispensable essential for me to be a Christ follower. I must be filled with the Spirit. Now, it's indispensably essential because first we see that it's a command. As we uh, go back a few verses to verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Remember, Paul is contrasting. We're still in the bigger picture of Paul giving uh, teaching on the church's um, sexual ethic. And whereas the world loves to have their parties, that drinking parties that lead, as the Apostle Peter explains, even to orgies and whatnot, and this was very pervasive in the culture, even in our culture today, and the contrast, the, the alternative for the Christian is to be filled with the Spirit, but be filled with the Spirit, and this, be filled, is a command. For those who appreciate uh, the grammar of it all, it's Present tense, passive imperative. I know, it's almost like an oxymoron, passive imperative. But first, I want you to notice that it is present tense, meaning it's meant to be a continual experience, a continuation in the present, in the very moment. And that's why I said earlier that God's happiness for you and me, God's happy now is for you and me to be filled with the Spirit. So in the present tense, ongoingly, continually, we're meant to be filled. So it's not something that you can just go after. It's not like you're like your car gas tank or your electric uh, vehicle battery and you're just trying to fill yourself up more to a certain level. That's not what's going on here. It's more the notion of just being entirely consumed, okay? It's not something for you to actively try to earn or accomplish, but really the passiveness in it is that it's in our posture, our attitude, waking up in the morning and that humble dependence, that immediate dependence, Lord, fill me with your spirit. That's, that, that's an attitude, that's a posture that you need God again for another minute, for another hour, for another day. But then what God delights to do is to fill you with his person. Now, let me try to liken it to this, because the Spirit indwells, and in that sense, he doesn't leave. He cannot leave, but he can certainly feel distant. And it's very much like, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's, it's like uh, being in a relationship with someone you love. Uh, let's just use marriage because it's a perfect, it's even a closer analogy. You can be living under the same roof and you can be so still in love after 50 years of marriage that in real sense you are filled with that other person and you continue to be motivated to serve and to do good and to nurture and care for and encourage and, and to love that other person because you're so filled with that relationship. 
and that other person. Now, on the other hand, let's say it's been 50 years of just bitterness, unforgiveness, and, and you're just like roommates under the same roof. The reality is you're still in covenant. The other person is still there. But you have grieved one another so terribly that it feels worlds apart. And so similarly, even though the Spirit indwells us, we're to continually, this is a command that as a Christ follower, to continually be filled with the Spirit. And that's why, to contrast, Paul says, do not do things to grieve the Holy Spirit. It is the most intimate, closest relationship that you can know on earth, even beyond a spouse. So the emphasis here is conscious continuation. And this is not an option for believers, but a mandate. I appreciate John MacArthur's uh, reflection on this in his commentary. And he says, no Christian can fulfill God's will for his life apart from being filled with his spirit. Let that soak in. No Christian can fulfill his or her, uh, God's will for his or her life apart from being filled with the spirit. We only look to, need to look to Jesus as our paragon. Why was he able to do what he did to accomplish and finish his perfect work of redemption on the cross and to be resurrected because he was filled with the Spirit. I believe from birth to especially being led into the, the, the wilderness by the Spirit and all his power to show signs of the kingdom, it's because he was filled with the Spirit to perfection. So this continuous aspect of being filled, it involves a day-by-day, moment-by-moment submission in our hearts, that posture to the Spirit's uh, encouragement, to the Spirit's power, the Spirit's uh, convicting our hearts, and in that sense, guiding us, and therefore, in that good sense, controlling us. Not that we're mindless robots. He very much uh, is in relationship with us, and we have to do our part. But we need to allow the Spirit to do that work in us. And so therefore, the, the Spirit is also our power, our power to follow Christ and live uh, the Christian life by faith, okay? Then we want to ask, and this is where we pivot now to verse 21, uh, what is evidence? What is evidence of being filled with the Spirit? Because if you're like me, it, it helps to, uh, um, my, my new community They laugh at me all the time because I love scales, one to 10, and I have to quantify, you know, on a scale of one to 10, and 10 being this and one being that. And sometimes it's helpful to have some measuring uh, sticks, and, and so that's what we mean by evidence. What is evidence of being filled with the Spirit? And so we come to verse 21. One evidence of being filled with the Spirit is that we will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We will mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we cannot overemphasize this. And so my prayer for us today and and really the thrust of today's uh, message and, and that short phrase of a verse, Lord Jesus, fill us 
with your spirit to overflow within the church because this, the specific context here is relationships within the church. Now let me clarify there and apply this. Church doesn't just mean Sunday mornings, 9.30 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. No, church means your new community. Church means your Christian household. Church means uh, relationships with brothers and sisters outside of 826 Eglinton and as you're fellowshipping together. Church means you being the church wherever you are as a, a city on a hill, as the light of Christ and the salt of Christ. So please do not have that narrow, uh, just stunted understanding of church, that it's just our Sunday gatherings. So Lord Jesus, fill us with your spirit to overflow within the church, our entire faith community life, everywhere. Your beautiful submission to the Father. Okay? That's the prayer for today. That we would overflow where it all starts and where we'll end this sermon is to see how Christ himself, Jesus the Christ, submitted. So, the organizing question for the rest of the sermon, what does Ephesians 5.21 mean? Submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. And what I want you to see with me now, uh, and I'm going to just ask him more as a question, three more questions today. What is new covenant submission? New covenant submission. And new covenant, if you're hearing that for the first time, that is God's final uh, agreement, final arrangement with humanity through Jesus, the mediator, the lawyer, so to speak. Through Jesus, this new covenant of grace. So what does submission look like? Because outside of the new covenant, meaning out in the world and in history, you even go back to Genesis 3 where the curse is laid out God says so clearly and specifically that in the cursed life now, there will be lording. There will be just ugly authority and dominion over one another. And we see that out in the world. Even right before our very eyes, history playing itself out right now over on the other side of the pond. Just ugly forms of authority trying to exert themselves and so forth. So we naturally our rebellious hearts, we, we don't like the word submission, but we have to understand what submission is under this new covenant, okay? Now, just to define it, and I'll, I'll, I'll unpack it from the text, but just to, to define it, new covenant submission is the humility. If I had to just choose one word, it's humility. Submission under grace as a Christian is all about humility. But just to elaborate more, is the humility to responsively, as an overflow, to respond joyfully and faithfully live out God's role for you in his redemptive gospel story. Because this whole notion of God having roles for us in his story, uh, that's the only way we're going to be able to appreciate when we get to the passage next week and the week after and, and the week after to, to understand and praise God for his definition of marriage and submission and so forth, okay? So all of us, be, even before getting to those relationships, all of us, we need to really chew on this notion 
that under God's grace, in his gospel, this new covenant submission is humility, meaning a certain kind of selflessness, to responsively. You're not meant to muscle this from your own asceticism and strength and beating yourself up. No, this is meant to be a response, a beautiful overflow, and it's supposed to be full of joy and faithful to the very end as we live out God's role for you and me. We have, all of us have many roles to play in God's redemptive gospel story, okay? So hopefully that helps. Now, as we continue then, let's address, I've already sort of touched on it, let's address three elephants in the room, authority, submission, and hierarchy, okay? I'm gonna make my argument very simple, as simple as possible. Whether you're a skeptic, whether you're a Christian, let's just look back on history, and can we please acknowledge, just very humbly and reasonably, that the history of mankind has absolutely run, for better or worse, on authority, submission, and hierarchy. When you go to work, there's a hierarchy. There's a certain authority, and whether you like to use the word submission or not, there's submission going on. They're saying, okay, I'm gonna defer to you. I'm gonna follow your lead. And really, the best of authority, submission, and hierarchy has created order and goodness for our societies, our cities, our, our, our countries through history. I'm not saying that there have been terrible, abusive examples of it, but the point is, human history basically has run on these things. And so we should not be afraid to think about these things and to see, okay, how can we redeem these things? Authority in and of itself is not a bad word, although it has become today. If we're honest, a nation cannot function without the authority of its rulers, again, assuming good authority, rulers, soldiers, police, judges, and on and on. And people should not hold to their authority because they think they're inherently superior or better, but that's what the curse has done. That's what sin has done. But we know, and especially as Christians, that there should be a kind of authority and submission and hierarchy that doesn't have to be enmeshed with the sinfulness of superiority and feeding your own ego and so forth. Because put another way, you don't have authority and submission and hierarchy, things will go into chaos. So even in our postmodern times, where we have in history these, these grand socialistic movements that, that want to sort of equalize everything for everyone, at the end of the day, if they're honest, and if, if you're honest and you look under the hood, there's a hierarchy structure there and they're trying to exert a certain authority as well, okay? And they want you to submit to their ideas. Although on the surface, they might say, it's for everyone, and everyone's equal, and so forth. No, that, that, that's just window dressing, okay? If we're honest. So don't be afraid to think about these words, but now let's see how God redeems these things in his new covenant. What it looks like with grace. Now, so this word submitting, 
Paul uses this word to submit. And this uh, submit, it originally, in Paul's understanding and how the word was used in his time, it's originally a military term to come under rank, uh, to be arranged in a certain order. And so the spirit-filled Christian, to kind of just get to the point, we're willing to, this is a bit of an oxymoron, we're willing to, even though there's this word submitting involves a certain hierarchy, it's saying now to submit to one another. So meaning, even though there is, it's a both end, there's a hierarchy, but what Christians, if you're going to fight about anything, it's going to, who's going to be more humble? <laughs> who's going to serve more? Who's going to think of the other person more? And we shouldn't be surprised by that. I think it's in some ways uh, even reflective of the beauty of our Trinity God. Three in one, both and. And so Paul is not doing away with hierarchy in the church. Meaning the, the family of Christ. And every little pocket and circle of church that I tried to explain earlier. Not just Trinity Grace Church or a local church, but his entire church, okay? He doesn't do away with hierarchy because he's commanding, the, the, or sorry, this is a, technically a, a, what you call a participle. It's describing the main verb, be filled. And how do we be filled with the Spirit? What does it look like? What's evidence? We are submitting to one another. We're willing to come under rank with each other. Okay? And uh, it's a mutual submission. It's a mutual submission. So we're all, to go back to that definition, we're all to play our role. We're all to play our role in the body of Christ. So I appreciate um, church father Jerome around 400 AD. Uh, he reflected on this, and so it kind of goes to show too, even 1,600 years ago, the world isn't too much different. Dealing with the same social problems, leadership problems. The difference between secular rulers and Christian leaders is that the former secular rulers love to boss their subordinates. Anyone feel like that about your boss? You don't have to raise your hand, but you go to work, man, my director is so bossy. (laughs) Whereas the latter, Christian leaders, love to serve. We are that much greater, meaning Christians, if we are considered least of all, okay? So, what's the command? We're called to submit to one another. Now, to whom do we submit? And I know I already said it, but to one another. We submit to one another. And really, some English translations say mutually. That, That captures the essence of this. We're meant to have this attitude in all our Christian relationships. Even where there is a clear hierarchy, uh, we'll get to husband and wife and starting next week, but even there, there's a clear God-ordained hierarchy. That the husband is the spiritual head, but even in that hierarchy, there is a very real uh, act of the husband submitting to the wife, even as he is fulfilling faithfully his role to be spiritual head. I know, it sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. But it's a beautiful mystery. Because the overarching 
command here that Paul gives to pivot into these instructions that have hierarchies in them is that we're to mutually submit to one another. This is the foundation. And this is why we're really chewing on this one verse. And so we're to submit to one another mutually. So first, just pause. And do you have that attitude as you relate to one another, especially to other Christians? Is there something default before you start that conversation, before you start that confrontation, before you start that teamwork or or whatnot? Um, Do you have that attitude? Is there something foundational there that's always on your radar? I'm meant to be filled with the Spirit, and what it looks like is to mutually submit to this Christian brother or sister. Now, let's get specific here, uh, and, and again, the context. How is mutual submission Remember, Paul, he's countering the world's sexual ethic. So how does this apply? How is this related to uh, living out a Christian sexuality? How is mutual submission counter to sexual immorality? First, let's remember, recall that Paul, he is giving an alternative to the sexually, now, keyword, self-centered lifestyle of the world. You boil down how the world wants to pursue their sexuality, you could boil it down to it's self-centered. It's for self-pleasing, self-identifying, self-actualizing. It's it's all self, me, 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 what I want, now. But for the Christ follower, this good fight, what it means is that we, you and I, it's, it's not about ourselves that we can't do it alone. So in this context of pursuing a godly sexuality, we're meant to do it, fight this good fight, not alone, but within community. The the single must find satisfying, pure, grace-filled, Christ-centered, relational fulfillment in the church. And so married folk or or widows who are content in their situation Please, let, let a burden on your heart, a, a mission, one of your missions while on earth to be to support and encourage singles while they are single. Singles need each other and singles need the other, every other person and member in the body to have a chance at a sufficient emotional, relational fulfillment so that their hearts don't have to wander out as the world does to try to find something to, some balm for for those longing desires. Similarly, marriages need the support of other couples and singles to thrive. For young families and couples that are older and sort of moving on to empty nesting uh, situations and so forth, you remember the craziness of how chaotic life was when your children were younger. And I already see examples of this, of singles reaching out to young families and saying, hey, how can we help? Can we give you a date night and and whatnot? But also married couples need other married couples to, in a safe place of grace, to be able to open up and, and share struggles and ask for prayers and receive counsel. Now, the essence of all this, how we're gonna do this is to have a healthy humility. A healthy humility that says, I need help. (laughs) I need others. 
I need to be served by others even. Even as the other side of humility, I want to serve others. It's both and. It's two sides of the same coin. And so that's why mutual submission to being, playing our role in God's beautiful redemptive gospel story and being the church is actually a counter to sexual immorality as we experience the strength and healthiness of family in Christ. Put differently, the seed of living immorally before God is, just to repeat something I've already said, is self-centeredness. Me, 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 me. But the antidote to self-centeredness is humility, utter selflessness, being joyful in serving others and also when you need to recognize it, I need to be served, to be helped. So again, the Bible doesn't do away with hierarchy and tongue-in-cheek in parentheses, neither does the world. So I guess this is partly a setup for the next few weeks to come as well as we talk about hierarchy and family uh, and parent to children and uh, masters to slaves and in in our modern day, uh, the work environment. So let's talk about these things through the lens of God's grace, okay? The Bible doesn't do away with hierarchy. And what we need, all parties and all Christian relationships were to be filled with an utter Christ-like humility, a selflessness that is willing to work with the other with grace. And so all our relationships are to be bathed, uh, just soaking in humility, love, and mutual submission. Okay? So let's end with this question. Then for you and me as the Christian, and uh, non-Christian friend, who's watching or listening, please really pay attention to this point, the answer to this question, because this is the distinction of true gospel-centered, Christ-centered Christianity. What's our unique power and motivation to submit? And so Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ out of reverence for Christ. This is our unique power and motivation to submit. Pursuing, put it this way, pursuing the Christian sexual ethic uh, and the Christian embrace of authority and submission, uh, I don't expect, if you're not a believer today, I don't expect you to get it. Because from just a self-centered, me-centered, and just wanting to be happy now perspective, it makes completely no sense. And I don't hold that against you. Because it's only until you see Jesus and how he has modeled this love, how he has loved us with this kind of love, with just fidelity to perfection and his humility to lay himself down for his bride, until you see that, the Christian sexual ethic and the Christian embrace of authority and submission will not make sense. And that's why all the more, as a Christian today, 
we're going to live this out, this command out, and be faithful in this new covenant of grace and be filled with the Spirit and have evidence of being filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another, the way you and I are going to do it is to continually be filled by the Spirit who opens up our eyes to see more of Jesus and his goodness and his beauty each and every day. And that's why, again, just another shameless plug and repetitive plug, come to 930 Communion as well. Because there are a lot of wonderful reflections of the beauty of Christ in that service. If you need help just to see more of Jesus. Of course, it happens here too, but 930 Communion does it in a, just a unique way. Beautiful way. So let, let me just end with this uh, kind of analogy, metaphor. Um, uh, I've uh, enjoyed the, the series called The Crown which has dramatized the history of uh, the British monarchy, uh, especially around Queen Elizabeth. And I never knew that how she, how the dominoes fell for her to come to the throne was because her uncle, um, King, he was once King Edward VIII, he abdicated his throne. And it was for his love, for basically, at least in the eyes of the, the monarchy, uh, of the royals, a commoner in the States. And she was a divorcee at that. And he could not, at least with the rules of the time, uh, be legally king and pursue her as his wife. And so what did he do? He made the choice for himself. I abdicate my throne to pursue this love. Now, in some sense, all analogies break down at some point. But to some very significant degree, I want you to appreciate that's what Christ has done for you and me. He abdicated his throne in heaven, left his glory, left his throne to also pursue an adulterous bride. The people of God are described in Hosea as an adulterous bride. And the church, for sure, even as wonderfully perfect and pure we will be on that final day. Before that, you and I, all we have to bring to the cross is our filthy rags of sin and falling short of God's glory. But that's how much Christ in humility has served us. He abdicated his throne to pursue his bride, his love. And so when we have that picture of Jesus, when we have the indwelling spirit filling us and opening up our eyes daily and as much as possible continually to our wonderful Savior, how can that not turn around into wanting to express that kind of humility towards one another as well? And playing out, submitting to our roles in God's gospel story. We'll get into more of what those roles are, especially within the family in the next few weeks. But it goes beyond the family. And just thinking of what our Christian mission is and so forth. So today really was partly to set a foundation, but in this short um, stick, it feels like this verse, it's just a phrase, but it's more than just a stick of dynamite. It's it's really like a stick of a nuclear bomb. Because here is a powerful, 
powerful foundation for the rest of the Christian life. So join with me. If your heart is there and ready to respond this way, would you pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, fill us with your Spirit to overflow within the church your beautiful submission to the Father.